Welcome to the Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Lucas Felton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcasts. Stories abound of what running was like in decades past. The shoes are made of leather, the tracks are made of cinders, and the sport wasn't popular. The list goes on and on. One of the top American runners of the 1960s was Bob Schull, who won a gold medal in the 5,000-meter race in the 1964 Games in Tokyo. That year, he set an American record for 5,000 meters and a world record for two miles. Bob went on to coach thousands of runners, including a stint at Wright State University in his native Ohio from 1996 to 2007. He's published an autobiography and a training manual. Bob's training was very different from most programs in use today, as were the services he ran on and the equipment he used. Only recently have parts of the system that Bob used come back into the running mainstream, and of course all of the equipment has completely changed. Some of the things Bob and I discussed included his training under legendary Hungarian coach Mihai Igloy, the experience of an Olympic Games, the Igloy training system of training by effort and making daily adjustments based on it, and shoes and tracks in the 1960s and changes from then to today. We'd like to thank Bob for his time and wish him the best of luck with all the athletes he's currently coaching. As usual, any of the resources mentioned in this interview can be found at runnersconnect.net slash runninginterviews slash Bob Schull. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. So to start out, Bob, can you tell us a little bit about your yourself and your running background? Well, I ran in high school and was a um, mediocre runner. Of course, I didn't train very hard because nobody knew what to do back then. In fact, I uh, crossed country. It was a two-mile race in those days. And so my practice was to run out one mile and turn around, run back one mile, go home. Uh, fortunately, I lived three miles away from home, so I rode my bicycle. And I probably got better workout on the bike than I did on the, on the run. So... High school wasn't uh, very meaningful because the coach that we had didn't know what to do. He had never run in his life. So when I got to um, get to college at Miami, I had a very good coach at that time. George Ryder was his name. And uh, over at that point, he was up in his 60s. But he trained very similarly to Igloy. It was sort of uh, between the English system of intervals and, and what Igloy did where uh, you didn't time everything you did on effort. And then when I got with Igloy, I left the university after a couple of years, that was that was where the really real training began. And I, I when I first went with him I couldn't believe how hard it was. I was uh, I had gone from Oxnard Air Force Base up to San Jose. That's where he had his, his team at the Santa Valley Youth Village. Jim Beatty was there, plus Laszlo Tabori, and a number of other runners. I trained with Laszlo every morning, every night for two weeks. He was not the athlete he had been, but he was still pretty darn good. I tell you, it was, it was a tough two weeks. If you've read my book, you know how strange it was when Laszlo didn't want to train with this newcomer. But we became friends fairly quickly after after I left and then he moved down to Los Angeles and I was commuting back and forth from the base at Oxnard down to Southern Cal where we were training at the time. We, we became good friends after that and didn't train much together at that point. 
I was trained mostly by myself, as Beatty did and Grella did. Only the club runners, as I will call them, uh, trained sometimes two or three or four together. But the rest of us kind of trained uh, by ourselves most of the time. So it was uh, it was interesting. And when I when I went back, got out of, got out of the Air Force, and went back to college at Miami University in Ohio. I trained by myself in a grass field near where I was living with my wife and showed up at the meets and had fun with it. There wasn't much competition back around Ohio at that time. And so I had to go to California, which I did from time to time to, to run in bigger races like Compton, where I broke the American record in the 5K and realized that the training I had been doing throughout the fall and winter uh, really paid off. One thing I had done was uh, I had run 13 races indoors that winter, and mainly because uh, I, I had to train outdoors. I just did it to get away from the cold. And I felt that uh, I probably by running the races, I would, I would keep my conditioning up. and It worked out fine. I lost a few races. Uh, Bruce Kidd and I ran eight times, and he won four, and I won four. Most of the time, it came down to the to the sprint, and whoever got the jump on the other usually won the won the race. Most of the time, it was by inches. It was fun, and I did. I lost lost the three mile to Javi uh, Thomas of Australia when he broke a world record. That that took care of the, the running and throughout the winter, and then ran a few races back in Ohio, Kentucky. With Miami, it was still pretty cold. Compton was the first race that I ran uh, where I had good, good competition. Probably the best competition of any race ever in in, in the United States. Because everybody who was who had run fairly well was in that race, including Bruce Kidd and and uh, Jerry Langland was coming up as a high school kid. Jim Beatty was there, and Ron Larue I think was in the race and and Bill Bailey from New Zealand. So, and I didn't, I didn't know exactly how good a shape I was in at that point because of the, the weather conditions in Ohio where we were running against the wind and the cold. But when I got the three laps to go and took the lead, I couldn't believe how good I felt. The problem was that they weren't calling out lap times. Nobody was there to tell me what kind of pace I was on. And if I'd have known that, I think I'd have broken the world record. I didn't find out till after the race was over what you know what time I was on. So from there on, I ran some fairly good races in a mile in San Diego. And as the year went on, I you know got back to New York and New Jersey to run to run the national championships and the Olympic trials. I think it was a two-day rest between the two. And my allergies bother me as I'm an asthmatic and has hay fever and all that stuff. And so I was feeling that. I didn't have difficulty, even with that, to win both of those. Throughout that year, I didn't lose a race outdoors from the mile up to 5,000 meters, which put my mental aspect of that into good stead because I, I thought if I could run under four minutes in a mile, which I did against Wigner and then later against Jim Grella. I had the speed and knew that if, if I was in a race, 
that I could finish very strongly, which I did in the Compton race. And when I broke the world record for two miles, which was an interesting thing, we were right on tempo. We were trying to go through at 414 first mile. I wanted to run faster, but George didn't think he could do it and, and continue on after the first mile, which was really too bad because I think I'd have been okay at 412 and probably would have been able to hang on. But we got over the first lap and it came into the, the back straight of the second lap and Mills comes around and is, is going to take the lead. Well, I passed George and followed Mills except after about 50 meters, he started to slow up, and I yelled at him. And he picked it up for a little bit, I don't think for more than 20 yards, and he slowed up again, and so we had to pass him. Then George, around the turn, after, I forget, around the turn, he passed me and took the lead again. The next lap, Norm Higgins, one of the big voice runners, came up and passed us again. And he didn't last very long at all. I don't think he lasted 40 meters before we had to repass him. After that, we were we broke Blake, and uh, they were they were dropping off very rapidly after that. George went through in 4:14, right on, held it for a couple more laps, and then uh, he was he was finished at that point. I took the lead, and with the two laps to go, the crowd was sort of into it. But I don't I don't hear the crowds usually when I'm racing. I'm concentrated so much on the running that. Nothing much exists uh, except the race. The last lane after uh, Pete was going, giving out times over the loudspeaker, all the guys who were warming up on the infield, there wasn't any other place to warm up at Pierce, so they warmed up on the infield for their races, and they all came to the track side, and uh, they were all along the back stretch, etc., into the little bit of the turn. They were screaming at me which helped tremendously, actually. And so I was driving uh, as hard as I could, coming around the turn into the finish line. And I was getting tired, no question. And when I hit the finish line, uh, and I cooled down, I went into the infield, and uh, one of the officials ran up to me. And he has a watch in his hand, and he says, look at this, look at this. And I, I couldn't read it. My eyes were blurry. I said, well, what is it? He says, uh, you've broken the world record. And I thought, well, that's what we're supposed to do, so we, we did it. We did a good job. Then I got a, all of a sudden, I got a terrific headache, which lasted for a couple minutes was all that went away. And uh, so I, at that point, after my 1338 5K at Compton and this, I was, I was feeling very good mentally about what, what was happening to my body, and uh, I was very satisfied. And I thought to myself that uh, I think I'm the person to beat at Tokyo. I was thinking that for after Compton, but this really, really put it into my mind that that I I was uh, going to run very well at Tokyo. And obviously, you did. Yes. That was an easy race, very truthfully. I was very surprised that Clark let it go so slowly. He tried to do some, you know, pick up stuff. He'd pick it up for 100 meters, 150 meters or so. And it was, it was too fast to keep going, so he had to slow up. And, and uh, even though the line sort of stretched out a little bit, uh, when he slowed up, the smart guys just 
caught up very easily. So we had a lot of people, as you know, going into the last lap. Only two had fallen off, and there were 11 starters, nine of us that were in a pack uh, with a lap to go. It's all crowded. Yes, it does. So I want to go, I want to shift gears a bit. Tell us a bit about how running has changed since you were at the kind of at the top of the sport. Like, what was participation like? Mass in terms of mass participation when you were running. Well, you got to remember that before Igloy, that uh, distance in the states were not very good. Max Truex uh, was our best. Of course, he did fairly well at Rome in the in the 10K, which was the best we had done for a while. The only gold medal we had run was in the steeplechase in '52. And he told me that that uh, he didn't expect to win. He, he, he thought he'd probably be in the top eight or ten. So uh, he had a good day. Definitely. So, and then, and of course, Max was was very satisfied with his run. He, I think he run. A, I think he ran a personal best in that race. I believe it was an American record as well. Yeah. And well, he probably had it before too. As a matter of fact. He was our best distance rider we had in a long time. In 64, then, um, the difference was that the people who were paid by were winning a lot of races. And the only the only people that uh, that could beat us was George Young and Deacon Jones in the, in the steeplechase. And uh, everything else, we were winning. With Max in the, in the town and... and uh, at that point, I was running fairly well, but Beatty was still the top 5K guy in, in, in 61, 62, and part, part of 63, too. Then George Young started to come along, and Deacon was doing well. So those two, and then uh, Jerry Langwood, as a high school kid, ran well, although he wasn't, you know, as a world class, he wasn't there, obviously. He got a lot of publicity for beating the Russians, but the Russians did not run well in Los Angeles in 64. They were just flat. Who knows why, other than I think they were doing a lot of sightseeing, <laughs> Disneyland and all sorts of things. So that might have been part of the problem. But the, the thing was, that in those days, we had to climb fences to train, and the tracks were terrible. And normally, we ran on the grass in, inside the track, because it was better, softer, firmer. The tracks weren't taken care of, so they were bumpy, and you'd probably twist an ankle if you tried to run on them. The only one that was better was at, uh, at UC. They took a little bit care of it. It was a different type of cinder track than the other one we ran on in the mornings at, at a high school. And so we used that once in a while. We used the grass on the inside, but... About half the time, I guess, we probably used the track to run our different distances. The thing was, all of us had to work. So we were working. We, we train at 5.30 in the morning and then go to work for eight hours. And right after work, we would go to uh, the track again at 5 o'clock. When I was in the Air Force, it took us an hour and five minutes to get down from the base to SC, Southern Cal. I had to come right from my job, jump in the car with my bag. I would dress in a 
inside one of the buildings. It was about 5.30 before we could get there. But it didn't make any difference. Uh, we were trained by ourselves anyway, so they'd rather give us our workout after we warmed up, and off we go. That was difficult. Six days a week, uh, Monday through Saturdays, is twice a day training. Five days, we were working our eight-hour shifts, and, and uh, on Saturdays, it was a little bit easier because we, most of us didn't have to work at the base. Sometimes I did, but... And Sundays with one 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 time, that was glorious <laughs> because we worked out in the mornings and had all day to to do what we wanted, and which was usually relax. I'm sure with that kind but of that schedule, time you're, you're too tired to go out and do anything. And I'm sure the wives would have liked to have done other things, but Jim Grohl and I became very good friends, and so his wife and. I, my to-be wife, and uh, so the four of us would go out and just do something, but it wasn't much. We didn't go out and walk around a lot. <laughs> I'm sure. I was just tired, so it was better just to, to rest. It was tough training. And these guys today that don't have to do anything and can, uh, you know, get their massage and get in the, the pool if they want and, Whatever they, whatever else they do, uh, it would have been great. My land, I was, uh, when I got mononucleosis in '62. It was in the hospital for three months. They told me it was the worst case they'd ever seen in Los Angeles County. Then in '63, a calf injury I picked up in '61 in, in Germany came back badly, so I missed. I went to the Pan Am Games and ran with a sore calf, couldn't spin on it. So I tried to lead the race, which I did, but I couldn't go fast enough because every time I picked up the tempo, I started getting shooting pains in the calves. Finished third, just, I wasn't even tired, but it was one of those deals. It didn't heal in time for the national championships, so I missed the second year. I was fortunate in 64, although I was training harder than ever before, uh, I was doing things in workouts that uh, I had never done. It wasn't that I was feeling more tired doing it. I was just in such, my body had just come around to be in better shape so I could, I could do things at a faster pace than I had done before and yet not feel any different. And uh, it was in June, no, it was in May, I think May, first part of May, that I decided that I wanted to see how good a shape I was in, and I decided to, that I would run 20 times 400 meters, run the first three in 60 seconds and the fourth one in 58, and take a fairly short interval when I finished the I finished the 400, I turn around, walk back 55 meters, turn back and start jogging back to the line and go again. All the way up through 19 with, with the 3 and 60, 1 and 58. And I ran the, ran the 20th one all out. Uh, every time I did that workout, which I did about every other week, it was always on a Sunday. I could run 54 points. 
and uh, I surmised that I could probably run the low 1320s because of that. And what was the world record at that point? The world record was uh, 35. Okay. 1335. So when I ran the Compton race in 1338, I ran 54 seconds the last lap and didn't start sprinting until 300 to go. So if I had known with a mile to go, to pick up those three seconds would have been easy. It just, it's just too bad somebody didn't notice that we were on world record pace. But I didn't realize it was going to be that fast. Coming out of the cold in Ohio, and I hadn't run a race that, with any good competition, that this was, it surprised me a little bit that it, my body was in that good shape. Just one of those things that you have to, you have to do is find out where you are and the 400 told me I was in very good shape, but you have to win the race to prove it. Exactly. So you wrote your autobiography, as you, you mentioned it briefly before, in, uh, it ends in 1964 after the Olympic final. It's called In the Long Run. So why did you decide to write that and publish it? Well, I didn't do that immediately. I waited a few years, and then I thought my daughter had never seen me run in races. Uh, she's adopted, and we adopted her after I had uh, finished running. And I thought uh, she'll have something that she can look at and read when she gets old enough to do it. So I started writing, putting down, and I, I had logs and all sorts of things. So, But it took me a long time to write it. After the first draft, it was long. I mean, it was twice as long as what it ended up. Why did you choose to end it after the Olympic final? Uh, I think because that was the, at, at that point, that was the culmination of, of, of my running, so to speak. I knew that I wasn't going to run again. As, a, as an asthmatic, I was very lucky that Japan was the, was the games in 64 because in 68, there was no way I could run in Mexico City. I would have had an asthma attack and probably because of, they had a lot of pollution and that would have, it just wouldn't have been possible. So I decided to end it there. I don't, you know, and then, of course, later on, I... I decided to go ahead and write a second book because uh, I, I, I did other things, not only the running part, but uh, uh, but some other things too. And most of that was his running. I mentioned some of the things I did, I guess, at work in that book, but in uh, training others, like Eamon O'Reilly and some other people. And I'm going to start on a third book too because I... I have two uh, grand grandkids now. They know that I won the Olympics, but they're eleven and nine at this point, so they're they're not so interested if that means anything to them. And uh, but as they get older, they'll understand uh, how important that was to uh, to U.S. track and field. 
as we're going into 50 years now, this is the 50th year, we're coming to the point where nobody else has, has done it or even come close. So it means something. Absolutely. So you've mentioned training under uh, Mihai Igloy, the the famous Hungarian coach. Tell us a little bit about what he was like as a person. Uh, he was very dedicated to start with. He had all, all the athletes. Uh, he, he, he really, he, he did things with us that were difficult, yes. But he wanted us to be the best that we possibly could. And we just, you just understood that. It was kind of interesting to me when I first met him in San Jose when I went up for uh, two weeks to train under him. Uh, Max Truix arranged that. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, he dressed in you know, a coat and tie on. Now, how many coaches in the United States go out to coach with a coat and tie? I doubt that any do. I, doubt, I would agree. I doubt hardly any. Yeah, but he always did. Even when we got to L.A., he, he wore a coat and tie. And he was always on his feet. He never went sat down any place. He always had a stopwatch in his pocket. And every so often, uh, we would see him pull the stopwatch out and look at it. And obviously, he had time somebody when they were doing something, whatever it was, under the effort that he gave us. And uh, they put it back in his pocket again. But he never told us what times they were running unless we were running uh, 400 meters. We very seldom did much over 400 meters. Once in a while we did. But we didn't time those too much. But 400s, he usually, he would tell us what we ran because he wanted us to understand tempo and to know how fast, what, what it felt like to run 60 seconds or whatever you're running. And so uh, those, those he would tell us what times we ran. But he was, he wrote everything down, um, we found out later. Uh, some of the guys knew that, I suppose, before I got there. But uh, he'd go home and, and uh, write all our workouts into a logbook. So he kept all that. I don't know where those long books are. I don't know if he took them with him or if Joe Douglas has them. Joe became, Joe was one of his athletes, pretty darn good coach now. He and Igloy talked a lot over the years. I think he became his favorite, favorite boy, which was fine, great, actually because Igloy had to pass on some of that to to somebody, which is, let's say, his deep thinking. I picked it up pretty easily when I was doing my workouts back at, in Ohio. I changed some things, but Igloy was always changing things, too. It, it didn't, he didn't keep the same, same things he did back in Hungary. They were similar, but you learn. You, you learn what things you can do, and you, you watch your athletes, and you you find out that, that the athlete can't do this. So therefore, you 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 change the whole premise 
of what they're going to do to make it work. And he did that too. I could, I could see, but the, the over two years I was with him, that there were things he did with me that had changed from when I was first there. So he was always thinking. He was very intelligent, very. When in Hungary, uh, they have to go through almost a pre, pre-med uh, series of studies to become a coach. So he, he knew a lot about the, about the body. It was fun to train with him. I mean, difficult, but fun. I looked forward to it when I was with him. And there were times I had to train by myself back at, back at the base because it just I couldn't get in there. First of all, I wasn't making very much money. So uh, it was difficult for me to drive in there. That's why usually I went with Maxi paid for the gasoline. But uh, it was, it was, it just, he was a great man. Of course, I remember he had, he had a hernia. He had a double hernia, as a matter of fact. He wouldn't go get it operated on. He said, no, nope. I found this out later. He didn't tell us, but he, just, he told the doctor, he said, nope, I've got to train. I've got to train the boys. Well, the doctor finally told him, we found this out later, that if you don't do it now, you could die because it would get gangrene. And uh, so he had it done, and I think he only missed a few days My before life. he was back at the track. It was, a, it was the first time that I ever saw him sit down. For, I don't know, a couple of weeks before he was healed enough to be able to stand up at the track again. Unbelievable. So, Igloo's method of training is not is not widely known or widely used in in the present day. Can you just kind of describe how the method worked as as Igloo applied it? Let me say a couple things. It, it's used somewhat, but they don't give Igloo credit for it. For instance, as I understand it, Salazar is now using speed work, and he mentioned this a couple of years back that he had changed his philosophy some and now was going into some speed work. Well, that was Igloi, you know. Uh, people don't, what people don't understand is when they first talk to me about it, they think everything was high speed. Speed work doesn't mean that under his thinking. Speed work is faster than a race pace. So if you're going to run a four-minute mile, that just means instead of running 60 seconds, you may be running 59 seconds. Well, for a miler, doing repeat 59s is no big deal. You know, you can, you can do that and do a lot of them because you're getting enough rest in between, even though the rest may be quite short. So when I first went under him and, and, and saw what he was doing, felt what he was doing, because I sure did. Those first two weeks, I was physically devastated. <laughs> I thought to myself, if I can get through this, and if I can get back and train with him some more, I can be a pretty darn good runner. Uh, I was just very fortunate that he moved to Los Angeles and didn't stay in San Jose. That training, as I say, of being on effort 
is the real key to it because everybody is different, obviously. And that's why you can't put people together in too, too many groups unless the workout that they're doing at that time is not so tough for the person who's not as gifted as all the others. That, that person could stay with them if you're doing a, a fresh set, which has no speed to it. You just, you're running maybe at race pace or even slower than race pace. So you have to, you have to understand the philosophy in it that it's based on effort and not on time. For instance, if you gave a person 200 meters, and let's just say you're going to give them six times at a certain effort, either fresh or good or even hard, on a given day, if you timed them, they wouldn't run the same time because their bodies don't feel the same every day. It kind of depends what they did the day before. It depends on what their work schedule was. It depends on if they had a fight with uh, their boss or their wife or their girlfriend. Those, all those things deter the body from functioning properly. But it doesn't make any difference. That's the point. What you're doing is you're putting an effort into the body. The body at that point then, by accepting the effort, will grow to do away with the effort. You follow that? Absolutely. The body's always trying to do something to curtail what you've done to it. It doesn't want to be tired. So if you, if you train to a point that you're getting tired in a workout, the body grows internally. That's why your blood supply increases. That's why your hemoglobin increases. The body has put up, it won't put up with the, the stresses because it, it grows to take care of the stresses. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so, as we, as we trained, and, and Igloy would continually go to plateaus. And so, and I do with all my runners, even now, no matter what, how good they are, they make any difference. You, you start out on a plateau that they can do, and as they master that plateau, or their body masters that plateau, and, and grows internally, then you jump to another plateau. And that, that what you have to be careful of uh, in coaching, you, you can't jump too far. And you have to see how far you can jump by testing the athlete at that new plateau and be sure that you're watching. That's why a good coach always watches athletes because if he jumps to a plateau and he, he jumped too far, injury could occur. Being too tired is a possibility, which means that your, your workouts for the following days have to be cut down. And if, you, if the coach doesn't see that, then he may put a too hard a workout on the following day and the body then would be devastated. Then it could become injured. And that's what has to be done very careful. That's why coaches that put workouts up on the wall are coaches. They're just throwing up workouts and hoping that everything turns out okay. But it doesn't make sense. Now, I do give, I get athletes, I have a kid right now that I'm training that he goes to Miami University. His training, he does a workout, then he'll, 
emailed me back with how he felt during the workout. And from that, I give him another workout. And then to test him, I have him run whatever, 200s, 300s, 350s, even 400s at a certain time. That's what I have to do to figure out can he do it. And if he can't do what time I put in there, then I have to back off a little bit until his body goes through all those processes that we've talked about, the blood, blood and, the, and the hemoglobin and red blood cells, you know, all that, to jump the plateau too fast. That's difficult. He seems to he, he come along very, very nicely. I don't like it. Don't get me wrong. It's not something I like to do. But uh, he's content with it, and I, I'm, I'm doing it because I want him to be a better runner, and there's nobody else can help him. So we'll see how that works out. He, he's, a, he's a young man from India. He was born in India. He's a U.S. citizen now. His parents came over when he was 11 years old. He's got dual citizenship. Anybody born in India maintains their citizenship forever, as I understand it. And he wants to make their Olympic team. Well, I asked him, I said, how fast is, do India, the people of India run? And he said, the fastest time is 1430. For 5,000 meters? Yeah, for 5,000 meters. So he'll be able to do that. We've got two more years of training, and I think he's pretty close to that right now. So he's really come along well. But as I say, it's not what I like to do. And uh, I was hoping he'd be here this summer, but he says he's he's going to go to school and finish up his degree this summer, so he, he wants to get out of there. And maybe after that, he'll be able to train with me for the last two years or so. So we'll see. That, that's that's sort of what I'm talking about is that it's better to be watching an individual train. That's the ultimate. Okay. If you're careful, you can do what I'm doing with him. But I can't press him as hard as I'd like to press him because I don't can't take the chance of getting him injured. Absolutely. So, so I have to back off in, in his training so we don't do that, and, and therefore he, he's not progressing probably as quickly as he would if, he was, if I could watch him. So when you started coaching yourself, training yourself in, was that the fall of 1963, what what were some changes that you personally made to the, the, the training you had done up to that point? I decided uh, very quickly to walk my intervals instead of jog. Angloy always jogged his intervals. Now, what I mean by that, if we were doing 150s on the track, 150 means you got a 50-meter jog before you start your next one. I decided to walk my interval and shorten it. And so instead of, I was doing, I had a grass, grass field I was trained on, so there was, there was a straightaway that was uh, almost 300 meters. So I marked out 150, 100 meters, 150, 200, and 300. So I knew where those points were. And so I started walking, and at first I was doing maybe, I'd walk 20 yards, turn around, walk 20 yards back, and go again. So I'd go back and forth on this grass field. Well, pretty shortly, I decided that I was too long a walk. So I shortened it to 15 meters. 
And then I eventually shortened it to 10 meters. And then for some things, I would shorten it to 5 meters. So basically, I'd finish, and by the time I stopped, I was almost at the 5 meters, and I'd be turning around immediately, walking back 5 meters and go again. That kept my heart rate high. When I was walking, if I'd walk 20 or 25 meters, and then walk another 25 back, go again, my heart rate would start to fall, and maybe fall by 10 or 15 beats a minute. Well, with the shorter walk, although I had relaxation of the muscle, my heart rate didn't have time. My body was still crying for oxygen throughout into the muscles. Therefore, the heart rate was staying high to pump that blood as fast as it could. And so, within a short period of time, I was, say within a month or so, I was shortening those intervals until later on, in the spring, and even in the winter, too, I was training where intervals were pretty short. I was doing a lot of the, a lot of the very short walks of 10 meters and less. And so if I was running hard 300s, you take a 10-meter walk and turn around 10 meters back, your heart rate doesn't have time to fall because you put a lot of pressure on your body. That was a learning thing for me, and it made sense because I knew that the heart rate was better for me as far as the body was concerned if it kept high. And so I was, my body was much better off because it was going to grow faster because I was putting those stresses on it. Do you think that this kind of style of training of running fast for a short period of time and then having a walk or a short rest suited you and your, your asthmatic nature? I don't know if that made much of a difference um, with the asthma. When I was in Ohio and got into, you know, May, I had some problems because my breathing was, was a bit different because my bronchioles were swelling because of the pollen. And I looked at that in this way. I said to myself, well, in effect, it's like training altitude because I'm getting less air into my lungs, which means I'm getting less oxygen into my lungs, pretty much like a desert altitude. A good way to think about it. Well, I had to think of something because it was uh, it wasn't it wasn't fun to do that because you're sometimes wheezing as you're running. But one of the things that did happen though, the better shape I got in, the less trouble I had with my allergies. I mean, the problems are still there, but they were they were lessened. So I could get away with it. So I get tired faster because I was getting less oxygen, trying to be careful with that. But at the same time, I knew that if I went a little slower, the effort was the same. You understand that? Yes. Just, just because I didn't get the oxygen, it, it'd be like running altitude. You couldn't do the same thing at 7,000 feet above sea level. If you're going to run a set of 400s, I'm sure I couldn't run 20 of them. 360 each, 458, could be done. Absolutely. So it didn't make any difference because if I was doing that and I was, I was doing that particular workout in Ohio and some of that was under stress because of the pollen, I was even better than what it looked on paper. Absolutely. So would you agree that, but real briefly, Igloo's method 
is a lot of sets of fairly short runs. You said generally 150 to 400 meters with pretty short recovery intervals within the sets and a little bit longer between the sets. Is that fairly accurate? Yeah, that's 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 accurate. What you, you have to do is how many sets are you going to run and what's in them. Yes. And each individual is different. So you may be given 200s to two different people, and the effort may be the same for each of them, but the time is different for each of them. This day and age, the the focus in training and pretty much all levels, from the top level down to even the uh, even just age group participants, is mostly on doing things like long, like longer repeats, like half or three quarter mile repeats, and long continuous runs. So why do you think the Igloy method of a lot of sets of shorter runs has fallen out of favor? I'm not sure I have an answer for it. I I train my athletes now with three days a week of the effort intervals, I call it. And that's enough for these people. And everybody I've ever trained has improved greatly. The thing is, in a race situation, I don't care if it's 10,000 meters or whatever it is, even the marathon today, you better be able to have good turnover. That turnover comes from teaching the body how to do it. And so if, if you're running 200s or whatever and you're going faster than what you would in a race, well, that changes as you get better. The plateau as you go up with your training, it not only increases with the number that you put into the set, but also the, the speed because you now you've jumped to another plateau which is higher, the effort's still the same, but now you're going faster. If you're running with a short interval where your heart rate never stops, or doesn't go down, it's exactly the same as a, being on a long run. Does that make sense? Yes. And then the idea is the heart rate is the same as being out on a long run, but the overall speed is much greater, so the turnover is maintained. That's exactly right. You're getting both of those, which I feel are, are so important. You know, even Lydiard, his long runs were, were in the fall, but when he came into race season... He was using shorter stuff. They got their speed there. Now, I, I don't know how short their intervals were when they were doing 200s or whatever. But they got into a lot of speed when they were going into their track season. So are there, I mean, you've, you've kind of described the Igloo system and how you trained. Was there anything that people, runners just kind of did as a matter of course in your day that maybe isn't really done now? I think, let me put it this way, the the difference is we couldn't do all the stuff they do today. Number one, there was nobody there to do it, or it cost too much money. For instance, massages. If we wanted to get a massage, we had to go pay for it. You know, most of us were not working at high-powered jobs when we were running because high-powered jobs didn't allow us to run. You couldn't leave at 5 o'clock or 4.30, whatever it was. So you had to find a job where you knew you could train and still be able to earn enough money to do it. If you wanted to go to a high-powered job, which I you know, did later after I quit running, you, know, you worked overtime because you were, you were in a position where something had to be done. And so you, you, had, a, you had meetings. When I was with a plant in Oakland, California, 
in human resources if we had to maybe hire some people quickly to get a, to get them into the factory to to build something it might it might mean that I had to stay over an hour hour and a half to get the job done and and interview some people so but you can do that with if you want to train and these guys today don't have to worry about it yes at least you the know? top level guys so it's kind of the opposite oh, right. top level you're right the other guys do and they're that, that makes them at a very big disadvantage so if you if you can reach that top early and then somebody like nike says hey come out here i'll pay you <laughs> you want to do anything well you're, you're lucky but if another person comes out of college and they haven't, like me, I was very late bloomer because my maturation was late. I mean, I didn't shave until I was a sophomore in college. But when I won the games at 27, it was like most people being at 24 or 23. Kids who do mature late, they don't have a shot at it. They certainly have a hard time. Yeah. I would love, I wish, I wish... You know, I could uh, have people come here and train, but this is not the area to do it with the winners that we have. I've never charged anybody to train with me. I've trained hundreds and hundreds of people. Well, that, I guess that talks about the English system in a, in, a, in a nutshell. The difference was that I did the effort interval every day. I don't do that with too many people. We did it four days a week. We did it Saturday, Monday, and Tuesday. And thirsty. So, one last thing I want to ask you. Um, these days, of course, the Olympics are a huge spectacle that involve all kinds of people in all kinds of places. What were they like as an event in 1964? You know, that's an interesting question. I've, I've thought about it a lot. First, first of all, it was a business trip, which meant that there was no messing around. Nobody uh, was going to... Uh, take me out on town. I didn't see Tokyo. My day was strictly get up in the morning. I trained by myself, and I found a track, which was the warm-up track above the stadium. It was a 300-meter track. It's all the room they had, I guess. I used that track. So I got up usually around 6.30, took a bus, you know, the buses that went around to all the sites, got off and did my training and then caught the bus and came around again. So I didn't see anybody else. In fact, nobody, when I was there anyway, I was there twice a day, nobody else used that track. And I thought to myself, well, probably because it's 300 meters. In my, my method, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything, right? And I, I was surprised because it was a beautiful track. It was well cared for. And since there was nobody else there, it was even greater for me. But being a business trip, I didn't do anything else except train, sleep, and eat. And um, that was it. So and my race was pretty late on the calendar. I think there were only two days left, if I remember right, of track and field after my final. I don't think, I don't think it probably is much different. I, when I was in the L.A. for the games, my half mile was on the Jamaican Olympic team, and uh, I could get into the village. There wasn't a track in the village, but, but it looked pretty much similar to what we were going through. 
I think the big difference is in today's world, we were for this back in, in the 60s. We kept trying to, to take a chiropractor with us so we have everything there to treat us. And at that point, they wouldn't do it. But we kept after them. And they finally, finally now, they do it. They take somebody. And so you've got, you've got all these people to give rubdowns, et cetera, but they didn't take enough people to give rubdowns to everybody. That was a problem. And so we didn't know they got anything like that. I didn't go out to the stadium at all to my races. So I watched on TV between workouts. Uh, the Japanese had a full channel for track and field. No, no advertisements, nothing. Just in a lot of ways, it's 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 probably manpower that is a big difference. Manpower to help the athletes. And last couple things I want to ask you: um, tell us about the equipment you were using at that point, about about your shoes and the tracks. Well, let's go with the shoes first. Uh, <laughs> You couldn't, you couldn't work out in the flats. They were cowhide. They were stiff. So if, if we got them, we just wore them walking around, you know. So you always had to wear spikes. The problem with that is that they don't hold your foot as well. And so uh, you're putting a little bit more stress on your foot than there should be. Now, in today's world, with the composition tracks, and the shoes are so much better. You can just wear flats almost all the time you're, tra- you're training, I suppose. The tracks, we thought some of them were pretty good because that's all we had, right? So you had a bad cinder track and you had a better better cinder track. The, the big difference between the, the cinder and the composition is, is tremendous for the simple reason that with cinders you get no bounce off the track. It's a dead track. With the composition, you're getting response off of that surface, and it, it's significant, by the way. Also, on cinders, there are holes that are brought about by pushing off your back foot. On composition, there's no hole, therefore, all the power is going forward. On, on cinders, since you, you create a hole, it means you're slipping backwards, so you're losing an inch or so, maybe two inches, just because your foot is slipping back a little bit as you push off. Between, between the bounce and no bounce and the hole itself, and then, of course, the third thing is these holes are on the track and you're stepping in them from time to time. You can't help it. I mean, there's so many of them in the 5K race with all the people, and you're in the first lane. The first lane is just a series of holes. And you step in them, and your body obviously has to kind of go right or left. And so you're constantly fighting that. Now, you don't feel that, but it has to be there. And so your, your energy is not always forward. Sometimes it's trying to pull the body straight up again. So my contention is that on the tracks alone, with the bounce of the composition, I think you could probably lose seven inches each stride. That's huge. In a 5,000 meters with a five-foot stride length, the, the seven inches is almost 200 meters difference in a 5K. How about that? 
Yeah, you talk you talk to somebody and say, well, that's four percent of your race that you're losing on the track. Yeah, and people today look at that now. Come on, come on, you know. And I say, well, would you give me a second? No, a second per lap? No, won't give you a second per lap. Can't be that much. I can't remember the guy from Australia, but he he ran very well. He was like a three fifty two miler, and he said, oh, it any difference. I'll go run on a cinder track. He couldn't break four minutes. And he said, oops. <laughs> <laughs> There's a dirt track in my neighborhood. I wholeheartedly believe it. <laughs> yeah. These guys today who break four minutes a mile, they run, you know, 359, 358. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have broken four minutes on cinders. I look at Jim Ryan's 351 on cinders. I land. How how good would that have been on all weather? It's a very good question. By, I'm uh, trying by, to tell the machine, by the way, that will measure the bounce of a track. That would be and, that, uh, that would be very interesting to see. Yeah, and so I I want to I just take it with me when I go to the to different meets and and a lot there's a lot of tracks in this area that I'd like to measure. I want to do Oregon's track because I know it's fast. And there's supposed to be one in Washington that's even faster. And then Oslo, I'd love to go to Oslo, because I heard that they've really done something on that track. They've, they've put cantilevered something underneath the top coating, which actually go down as you hit them and then spring back. Speaking of track surfaces, when you were running all those indoor races, you were running on, is, is it wood, right? Yes. And how does that compare to all-weather track? <laughs> They were interested because they would bounce, too much of a bounce. So if, if the person in front of you caused the thing to bounce, instead uh, it might be coming up as you were going down with your foot. So kind of like a trampoline. Yeah. And of course, you know, you hit the track before you were supposed to hit it, so to speak. Right. So it kind of threw you off a little bit. And uh, I have to ask... Were all the meats truly filled with cigar and cigarette smoke? <laughs> yeah, they were. That must have been fun for your asthma. Yeah, I, I suppose it bothered me some. I, it, most of that probably was going up, not down. And so the tracks were always lower than the, stand, the, the stands were and the people were. Uh, the funniest thing that I, I heard was in Madison Square Garden, yeah, not not the new one, the old one, that there was a section that people went to bet. So if, if you wanted to bet, you, you got a ticket for that particular section. And there was just a lot of betting going on. I didn't find that out till after. So I don't want to keep you too much longer, Bob. This has been an, uh, a really, really interesting talk. I know a lot of people will get a lot out of it. What um, what What final advice do you have for those for those runners out there of, of all levels, not just elite? Well, if they're, if they're going to run and want to compete at their level, whatever that level is, they have to be intelligent about their training. They have to choose surfaces to train on that won't hurt them. So they, they can't be running on the roads all the time. So find a good grass field or a track that's a little softer than the normal track. My track here, where I train my kids, is a softer track. You couldn't break a world record on it, but it really takes the pounding away from the legs. 
So it's great as a training track. That sounds like pretty sound advice for anybody. Be sensible about your training and do it on a good surface. Yeah, and the other thing I guess I would say is, you know, choose a training method that suits your personality. And there's no question that, that that's important because you don't want to do something that you hate. You know, it may be the best thing for you, but if you hate it, you probably won't continue with it. So choose something you, you like and maybe throw in something with big glory and, and, you know, maybe a couple of days a week that would give you the added speed that you, you need for your races, even though you may not like to do it. Uh, I really liked it. I mean, I, I thrived on it. Uh, the kids I train seem to like it. They say they do. I don't think they're lying to me. It's, it's a matter of, of knowing what you're doing and not just reading somebody's critique of, of a system, but understanding the system. That means you delve into what it is and you find out from somebody that knows what it is how to do it, which means, uh, you know, they call me or they call Joe Douglas and say, have five minutes of, of talk or whatever. I, mean, I do that all the time. Guys will email me and I write back and say, send me your phone number and I'll call you. And we'll talk for 20, 30 minutes. I have a lot of people using my workout book now. I'm not sure everybody uses it correctly. But, you know, that they've written back and said that they're, they're running off better than they ever have. And clearly enjoying it to some extent, or they wouldn't be continuing to do it, or writing back yeah. if they like it. That's right. So, you know, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Just to enjoy what you're doing and running. And for most, most of the people out there, they're not trying to be an Olympic champion. They're trying to go out and have a good race and feel good about it and maybe maybe get prize out of it. But hopefully what they want to do is continue growing and racing better and faster with the training that they're doing. Well, Bob, I really appreciate uh, this has been a rather long interview, longer than I had planned it being, and I really appreciate you uh, sticking with me and uh, given and being so free with all your knowledge and experiences. Well, take care. Okay. Very good. Thank you very take much. Care. I appreciate it. Have a good day. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This has been a Runners Connect podcast. If you have a question about what you heard or feedback you'd like to give, please don't hesitate. You can leave a written comment on the episode, either on our website or through our iTunes page, or you can leave us a voice message. The number for that is 617-356-7969. We'll answer as many of the questions as we can in one of our monthly Q&A sessions. We look forward to hearing from you, and thanks for listening.